0: This episode of Food Psych is brought to you by my online course, Intuitive Eating Fundamentals. If you're ready to break free from diet culture and reclaim the life it stole from you, learn more and sign up for the course at christyharrison.com/course. That's christyharrison.com/course. Welcome to Food Psych, a podcast about intuitive eating, health at every size, body liberation, and taking down diet culture. I'm your host, Christy Harrison, and I'm an anti-diet registered dietitian, certified intuitive eating counselor, and author of the book, Anti-Diet, Reclaim Your Time, Money, Well-Being, and Happiness Through Intuitive Eating, which is available now wherever books are sold. Join me here every week as I interview interesting people from all different backgrounds about their paths toward peace with food and their bodies. And by the way, on this show, we bleep out diet culture stuff like weight and calorie numbers, but we don't censor swear words or other adult language, so listener discretion is advised. Hey there. Welcome to episode 251 of Food Psych. I'm your host, Christy Harrison, and today I'm talking with body image coach and friend of the pod, Summer Inanen, who was first on the show way back in episode 68, a million years ago, or what feels like it anyway. And in this interview, we talk about weight-inclusive pregnancy and postpartum resources, raising socially conscious anti-diet kids, her experiences returning to work from maternity leave, why she rebranded her body image course, and so much more. I can't wait to share our conversation with you in just a moment. But first, I'll answer this week's listener question for Ask Food Psych. It's actually not just one question, but a bunch of different questions that I've gotten from people asking about my response to particular studies or articles about COVID-19 and weight, because I've talked about that a lot on the podcast and in my social media and my, my writing. Um, so rather than address all of these specific questions and studies piecemeal, I thought I would talk in general about the state of the research and the media coverage of it, because it's been a few months since I last addressed this topic on the podcast, and I I know people continue to feel a little shaken when they read this coverage or hear the media talking about COVID-19 and wait. So thanks to everyone who's asked me about this. And before I dive into answering some general and some specific questions, I just want to give my standard disclaimer that these answers and this podcast in general are for informational and educational purposes only, aren't a substitute for individual medical or mental health advice, and don't constitute a provider-patient relationship. So to start off, I want to talk generally about this research and the articles about it, just as a reminder that, you know, the basic issues with the research on COVID-19 and weight that I outlined here months ago and in my Wired piece back in April still generally hold true. And so these issues are, first, most studies on COVID-19 and weight don't control for potential confounders, confounding variables like race and socioeconomic status, which we know create disparities in health outcomes for this virus and for many, many other health conditions. So as sociologist and past podcast guest Sabrina Strings shared in a May 25th New York Times op-ed, she said, when it comes to how this virus is disproportionately affecting black communities, quote, researchers have yet to clarify how a seven percentage point disparity in obesity prevalence, and those are her words, right? Obesity prevalence translates to a 240% to 700% disparity in fatalities, end quote. Right? So, seven percentage points in difference in having a body size at the larger end of the spectrum, somehow translating to 240 to 700% disparity in fatalities. It just doesn't add up. Second, in general, studies that look at the supposed connection between higher weight and worse COVID 19 outcomes don't control for the ways in which clinicians' preconceptions and biases about body size can influence the quality of care that higher weight patients with the virus receive, which in turn influences their health outcomes. That was true during the H1N1 flu pandemic years ago, and during that pandemic, study after study came out blaming BMI, blaming body mass index, higher weight, and even today studies are still using the example of H1N1 and referencing those past studies to supposedly show that people in the quote-unquote obese BMI category are at higher risk of severe illness and mortality. But as I think I talked about here, and as I know I reported in my April 2020 Wired piece, a systematic review and meta-analysis of studies on H1N1 and BMI ultimately found that there was actually no increased risk of mortality for people with BMIs of, you know, in the so-called overweight category and above— And any associations between high BMI and non-fatal but severe complications disappeared after the researchers adjusted for the fact that smaller-bodied H1N1 patients were more likely to get better quality medical care. Specifically, they were getting earlier intervention with the right medications. So, in other words, high BMI itself had no bearing on mortality risk at all, and medical weight bias, rather than weight itself, was responsible for the increased risk of severe but non fatal outcomes in H1N1 among people with BMIs in the so called obese category. So, we'll link to that study in the show notes for this episode for anyone who's curious. And we'll also link to that Wired piece that I referenced too because I talk about the H1N1 study there as well. And it's, of course, very common for larger bodied people to get worse treatment in our diet culture based healthcare system, which is something that we talk about all the time on this podcast, right? And so I think it's likely that we'll see that medical weight bias is playing a key role in COVID 19 outcomes as well. I'm sure that that's happening. And I think that once meta analyses come out that actually control for quality of care as they should, the research will show that. Now, third, I have not seen a single COVID-19 study that controls for the physical health effects of weight stigma and weight cycling, which are well-known independent risk factors for many of the conditions that typically get blamed on weight, including heart disease and metabolic issues. And those things are risk factors for COVID-19, it seems to be. So it is possible that weight stigma and weight cycling can actually account for much of the difference that we're seeing in COVID-19 outcomes with higher weight people. And weight stigma and weight cycling would be hard to accurately control for anyway in research because, you know, as health coach and friend of the pod, Reagan Chastain says, you cannot study fat people in this culture without also studying a history of dieting, without also studying a history of stigma. So how can researchers ever definitively say that it's the weight itself that's the problem? Answer is they can't really. They're just biased. They're weight biased because of being so indoctrinated and steeped in diet culture the way we all are that it makes people jump to conclusions. When they see correlation, they like to attribute causation even when there's no evidence of causation. So generally speaking, if you find yourself reading yet another article touting some new study as more supposed evidence that the only way for larger bodied people to protect themselves from COVID-19 is to lose weight or that weight is the cause of higher levels of COVID-19 in certain populations, just try to remember these general principles I outlined and think critically about the research. Now, I will address a couple specific studies and media reports about them that have come out recently because people have been asking me about them. Really, if I wanted to discuss every piece of content about this, about COVID-19 and weight, it would be a full-time job because every single day, the media keeps pumping out content about the purported link between poor COVID-19 outcomes and higher body mass index. And you know I see these results in Google searches and PubMed searches that come into my inbox every single day. And yet, to date, I have not seen any convincing evidence that this link definitively exists. Different studies have come to very different conclusions, including some studies showing no link at all or even a protective effect of high BMI in certain populations, as we'll discuss in a minute. And what's more, even if a COVID-BMI link does genuinely exist, I've seen no good evidence to date that higher weight somehow causes poor COVID-19 outcomes. So right now, all we have is inconsistent evidence of correlation. And again, the golden rule in statistics is that correlation is not causation. So researchers have merely been speculating on the ways that body fat itself might be to blame for these outcomes. You see this in so much media coverage, right, where researchers are asked, you know, what could be the cause of the link between higher weight and poor COVID outcomes? And the researchers are spouting off about different things that are supposedly associated with the fatness itself, right? And that rush to implicate fatness is a form of weight stigma, which ironically, as we just talked about, is one of the real contributors to poor health for higher weight people. You can see this, for example, in an August 12th study that I got asked about by a journalist over the summer. The study followed 6,916 patients in a Southern California healthcare system. And media coverage of the study has reliably included speculation about why fatness supposedly led to higher COVID-19 mortality among higher weight participants. But if you look closely at the study, if you do a close reading of the science, it tells a really different story. And by the way, here I'm not going to use specific BMI numbers because I have an editorial policy on the podcast of not using numbers in order to keep it safe for people who are healing from disordered eating. So if you need to know the actual numbers because you're a researcher or you're writing about it or something, um, we'll link to the study itself in the show notes for this episode. But obviously, big content warning, trigger warning for BMI numbers and weight stigmatizing language in that study. So first, this study found no increased mortality risk for people at any age or sex with BMIs in the quote-unquote overweight category and most or much of the quote-unquote obese category. And when the researchers drilled down into the risks for people with BMIs at the high end of the so-called obese category, they found that mortality risk was only increased for men in that group, not for women with those same BMIs. So women at the very highest end of the weight spectrum were not found to be at greater risk of dying from COVID-19 at all. So despite headlines making these blanket statements about a link between higher BMI and mortality risk, this study found that risk was only elevated for a very specific subset of larger-bodied people. And even if these results were airtight, which I'd argue they're not for all the reasons we've discussed, men with BMIs at the high end of the weight spectrum still shouldn't freak out or really do anything different to keep themselves safe from COVID-19 than the rest of the population should do. So, you know, everyone, regardless of body size, still needs to continue to practice physical distancing, wear masks in public, especially if you're in any sort of enclosed space, right? I mean, really anywhere you're in public, but, you know, enclosed spaces are the most dangerous, right? Wash your hands frequently, avoid touching your face or your nose, your eyes, especially avoid contact with people who are known or suspected to be sick, work from home if possible, et cetera, et cetera. All of the things that we know we need to be doing anyway, and that hopefully our governments are enforcing, although sadly, that is very piecemeal in the U.S. where I am located, right? Some governments are fully opening things up and putting people at major risk. And the reality is that even if weight were a COVID-19 risk factor, and again, the jury is very much still out, the science is very very young still, we still don't have a safe, sustainable way for people to lose weight. The overwhelming majority of weight loss attempts just end in weight cycling, which is a known health risk factor independent of body size, independent of how large someone starts or ends up. Any weight cycling has been shown to be an independent risk factor. And weight stigma is another independent health risk factor, which, again, you know, the August 12th study and none of these studies that I've seen so far ever control for, right? They don't control for the medical weight bias that we know harms people in larger bodies, as we talked about earlier, right, with the H1N1 example, and again, I think it's likely that we'll see the same results for COVID-19, that weight bias is playing a role in these differential outcomes around body size once we have meta analyses that come along that really control for quality of care. Another thing that's really odd and that I want to sort of drill into about this August 12th California study is that it didn't find any differences in outcomes among different races and ethnicities which is weird, right? Given the fact that we know this disease is disproportionately Im- impacting Black, Latinx, and indigenous communities, not because of anything to do with their biology, but because of systemic racism resulting in higher rates of exposure to COVID 19 and less access to healthcare, right? Those are pretty well known things that have already been established elsewhere in other studies and other research. In this August twelfth study, the researchers themselves acknowledge that the fact they didn't find any racial differences may be because the healthcare system where the study was conducted, which is Kaiser, for anyone you know, fellow California-born folks who know Kaiser, they have a more you know equalized healthcare system, and therefore that healthcare system maybe doesn't reflect the racial health disparities that we usually see in the U.S. And so that's a major limitation of this research when it comes to controlling for the impact of race on COVID-19 mortality, although, of course, it's a good thing for the well-being of the study participants, right? It probably speaks well of Kaiser that they didn't find these racial differences. Finally, a really important limitation to note of this study is that it was funded by the pharmaceutical company Roche Genentech, which likely has an interest in developing weight loss drugs. Roche was the originator of the weight loss drug Xenocal, then it sold it off, but, you know, is likely working on more, right? So I recommend taking a critical eye towards studies with this type of funding when they find some adverse effect for people with high BMIs, because, of course, that's beneficial for any pharmaceutical company that is looking to sell weight loss drugs. So if fatness itself really were the COVID-19 risk factor it's made out to be, we would see that across the board in every single study, in every high BMI category, in every sex assigned at birth, right, in all different populations and age groups. And instead, the research is really inconsistent at best. Another recent study, for example, suggested that high BMI may actually have a significantly protective effect in certain groups. So again, we'll link to that study in the show notes. And again, content warning, trigger warning for weight stigmatizing language in that study and for numbers. But that was published in BMJ Open on August 11th. And that study found that Black and Hispanic ethnicity are associated with significantly higher odds of getting COVID-19, which is consistent with what we see in other literature, right? Even when controlling for quote unquote obesity, and in fact, the study shows that Black and Hispanic people in the quote-unquote obese BMI category are actually less likely to contract the virus, 17 to 18% less likely to get COVID-19 if they're larger bodied than if they're smaller bodied. The researchers in that study don't speculate as to why that is, but it just goes to show that the scientific data is still very much in flux. And we can't draw any firm conclusions about larger body size being linked to increased COVID risk. And you know, in my view, the push to jump to those conclusions is really a product of diet culture and of the industries that profit from it, including the diet industry, the bariatric surgery industry, and the pharmaceutical industry all of which, by the way, seem to be behind a lot of the research showing a purported link between COVID-19 and high BMI. So that's really important to look at. Interestingly, speaking of bariatric surgery, there's one more study that I want to highlight that was just published on September 1st, and that found that among people who'd had bariatric surgery in the past year or more, the ones who had lost more weight after the surgery and who weighed less at the start of the pandemic we were actually more likely to develop COVID 19 than those who weighed more and who had lost less weight. Now, that study doesn't show causation, right? Because in technical terms, it was a retrospective cohort study, not a randomized controlled trial. So it can't show causation. You know, we can't say that weight loss or being at a lower weight caused people to develop COVID 19. But certainly, weight loss didn't seem to help matters at all. On the contrary, it was actually associated with a higher risk of contracting the virus. And that's exactly the opposite of what all this diet culture media messaging tells us. Now, the study couldn't determine why that is, why weight loss was associated with higher risk of COVID-19, again, because it was a retrospective cohort study and not the right kind of study to tell you causality. But the researchers did speculate that it could be because bariatric surgery-induced malnutrition led to a higher risk of COVID-19 infection, because we know that malnutrition is associated with higher risk for respiratory illness. And the researchers didn't find any difference between the people who got the virus and those who didn't in terms of vitamin supplementation. So, you know, to me that says that the malnutrition was not about specific vitamin deficiencies from the surgery, but rather about the weight loss itself. That study also was limited because it was conducted in France, where apparently scientists are actually not allowed to collect data on race for studies like this. I learned that from a researcher in France that I reached out to for an article I was writing. So that's a potential confounder, right, that they couldn't control for race. But given the fact that other studies have found that people of color tend to lose less weight after bariatric surgery, and by the way, also have worse health outcomes on other measures as well. The fact that this French study didn't control for race actually means that the risk for COVID-19 among people who lost more weight after surgery is probably even greater than what the study reports. So as you can see from that quick overview of some of the recent science, it's definitely not true across the board that higher weight is linked to higher COVID-19 risk. And in fact, some studies show a protective effect from higher weight. So any increased risk we do see from higher weight likely has more to do with the biased treatment that higher weight people receive from COVID-19 and really all other kinds of health care than it does with their weight or their body fat itself. And the one study I've seen so far, that September 1st French study that looks at associations between recent weight loss and COVID outcomes, finds that weight loss and lower weight are actually risk factors, not protective factors for COVID-19. So, in short, if we really want to help improve COVID 19 outcomes for people of all sizes, we need to stop reflexively blaming body fat and start looking at deeper issues like weight bias and other social determinants of health. So, thanks to everyone who asked questions about this topic. I'll continue to follow it as time goes on as well. And if you want to submit your own question for a chance to have it answered on an upcoming episode, you can go to slash questions. That's christyharrison.com slash questions. then if you want to ask me any question you want and have me answer it much more quickly than I can here, you can come join my online course, Intuitive Eating Fundamentals. There I do a monthly Q&A podcast just for course participants. So you can ask me to analyze studies for you. You can get answers to whatever questions you might have about intuitive eating and your relationship with food. And every month, with the help of my amazing community associate, Vinci, I answer your questions there, and I've done hundreds of answers already for other participants, so you can listen to all of those as well. And this amazing library of content is really just for course participants, so it's a it's kind of a unique thing. It's hundreds and hundreds of answers beyond what I'm able to give in this podcast. The course also has 13 modules of audio and written content where I teach you about the principles of intuitive eating and help you troubleshoot everything that's coming up for you as you're learning them. And there's a private community forum where you can get real-time guidance and support from me and my team and hundreds of other awesome people who are in the course supporting you on your path. If you're ready to break free from diet culture and reclaim the life it stole from you, learn more and sign up for the course at christyharrison.com course. That's christyharrison.com course. This episode of Food Psych is brought to you by my book, Anti-Diet, Reclaim Your Time, Money, Well-Being, and Happiness Through Intuitive Eating, which is now available wherever books are sold. It's a great companion to this podcast because it goes into so much depth about diet culture and the ways that it harms us with tons of scientific references and resources to help you make the anti-diet case to the people in your life. It also lays out the foundation of intuitive eating and helps you start making peace with food and your body. Just go to christyharrison.com slash book to order it now. That's christyharrison.com slash book. And now, without any further ado, let's go to my conversation with Summer Inanin. Summer, welcome back to the show. I'm so excited to talk with you again for the podcast. We've talked a lot outside the podcast, both of our podcasts. And the last time we actually had a conversation for this show was four years ago, which is bananas. It's just wild to me that that's but it's been that long. So a lot has happened in your life since then. I would love to catch up about all of it and you know, just share with our audience what you've been up to.
1: Yeah, I can't believe it's been four years ago. I remember being so nervous because <laughs> you know, I was hadn't been doing this work for as long. I think you get more comfortable the longer you do the work that you do, obviously, and the more podcasts that you do. But I remember being so nervous and uh yeah a lot i mean a lot has happened i think that the biggest thing in in my life was that i decided i wanted to have a child later in life and ended up fortunately getting pregnant and and having a child who is now a toddler he'll be turning 2 this september which i think probably around the time that this will air and just navigating life as a as a person have it with a pregnancy, going through even just like the emotions around whether I wanted to have that in my life was like a a huge thing that I experienced. and and then obviously raising a child and having a business and trying to navigate those things. and then having a global pandemic on top of it all. So a lot has happened <laughs> in the time that we the last time since the last time I was on here, but i'm still you know i'm still helping people in the same capacity i rebranded my program it's now called you on fire and i can talk to why i decided to do that but yeah i mean just always evolving but still the same person in my core
0: <laughs> i love it that's yeah so much has happened but i do feel such a same you know core energy that's always been the same from you like since i've known you it's just you're like very dedicated to what you do and it really shows and it's awesome. But it's it's been cool to see the iterations too happening, the relaunching and rebranding. I want to talk a lot about that too, but I also am just so curious to dive into having a child and that whole thought process, not just from the place of what do I want in my life, but also as you know, a person with a history of poor body image and disordered eating and those struggles, a lot of my clients will come to me and say, I'm thinking of having a kid or I just got pregnant and you know I'm really concerned about what it's going to do to my recovery and my body image. And this is going to be like this next level challenge. So I know that's something that's on a lot of people's minds when they think about having children. What was your experience of that when you started thinking about it and then when you got pregnant too?
1: Yeah, you know, it's it's really interesting I think because I'd really done so so much work and healed so much that by the time I got to a place where I wanted to have a child and then actually got pregnant, I I really didn't worry too much about what my body was going to do, but I think that's also because I had a lot of tools in place to support me with my changing Body. It's one of those really interesting times. I sort of find, like, when I'm working with clients who are going through pregnancy. Sometimes clients really fear what's happening to their body, but a lot of times it's actually a place where you can truly surrender because you really don't have control. Like your body's going to do bizarre things. And I think that for a lot of people, you think it's going to be bad, but then it's actually easier because you really just have to kind of surrender. And it's easier to have an appreciation for what your body is capable of when you are you know, growing a baby inside of it. Like sometimes that can actually be almost like, a catalyst to having a greater sense of acceptance and appreciation for your body but there's a lot of things I did to support my body image in in the process like I didn't weigh myself at all there was no point in time where I weighed myself so the first appointment I had with my midwife she asked me do you want to be weighed like do you want your weight to be tracked and I was like no I'm good and so I think that that was super helpful and that's, and, and you're allowed to do that. I think that, you know, you, you obviously have to work with your doctor and whether your doctor feels like that's information they need, but even if that is information that is, is necessary, you can always ask to, you know, not have that number or turn around or have it like be a blind way in. But from, from what I've, observed and, and and just, you know, in speaking to people, the majority of people, of, of doctors will actually just be like, okay, you know, we we don't need your weight. It totally depends though, because I've heard the other side of it too.
0: Which is so fascinating because I think people don't hear that enough. And I, I wonder if there's also some difference in like the Canadian versus the U.S. healthcare system there, if there's something about like private insurance that has to do with needing the weight. Oh, that's true. Because I know that Private insurance, they will not... Some hospital systems will say that private insurance won't reimburse them unless they have a certain number of anthropometric measurements, meaning like your height, your weight, your blood pressure, your temperature, whatever. So you have to have the weight. They, they say, you know, they're like ideally looking to get the weight to have enough anthropometric measurements to get the reimbursement. But as I've discussed on the podcast before and with my clients a lot and online course participants, there's ways around that too, where you can say, just write refused in my chart. And that seems to be kind of like a magic key for some doctors and healthcare systems where they'll say, okay, we'll do that. Because that word refused is like the accepted word, meaning like Okay, we tried and they wouldn't do it. And so now you have to reimburse us even though we didn't get that measurement or something. Oh,
1: interesting. Oh, that's really good to know. I didn't know that.
0: Yeah, it's a really helpful thing. I don't know if it works across the board, but everyone I've talked to who's tried it has said it did work for them. So that's oh. kind of a, a cool key. But I mean, that regardless of whether it's sort of a healthcare system thing, I just think that the idea that you actually don't need to be weighed in pregnancy is kind of mind-blowing for some people. It seems like it's the way to measure a baby's growth or something, and yet it doesn't have to be, right? Did you have other ways that they were able to see whether the fetus and the baby was, was growing adequately?
1: Yeah, they do. They
0: do a measurement from your.
1: Uh, I I can't remember like the 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 actual anatomical name for the part of your body, but just sort of like the top of your pubic area to the belly button, and they measure. I think it's called the might actually be called the fundus, like that measurement. <laughs> I don't know. I might be making a word up right now. And they measure that like every you know every time you visit, and then and the the way that that grows is indicative of the baby's growth. At least that was how it was done in. The midwifery I went to, I will say, like, the midwifery I went to was really progressive. Very inclusive and definitely skewed more towards like hippie socialist type values. So I thought I think that's why my experience there was probably they were really agreeable in terms of that. And and the other thing too, like I'll, I'll say is that I think that there there are some times where you have to be conscious of your weight. Like if your weight is declining in pregnancy, or like if something just doesn't feel right, or it's like rapidly increasing and you're concerned, then I think that there you know sometimes it can be a symptom of something else. And so that you, you know you do want to just be in tune with what your body's doing and speak up if you don't feel like something is right, but in terms of protecting your your the way that you feel about your body and get and being triggered with any kind of disorder behaviors, I think it's really important to avoid that number in that process, because I think it can probably send people down a slippery slope. And for me, I mean, I feel like I probably could have seen the number, but I just, it was more of like a, I'm not doing this as a role model for everybody else. Like, And, and really, I just like, I don't need this. Like, what does it, what is that going to change for me? Nothing. Like my body is going to do what it's going to do. And my appetite was, was so, amplified like I was eating so many meals a day and I had to wake up at two or three in the morning every night to eat like I would eat a piece of toast with you know peanut butter or banana or something because I honestly couldn't make it through the night without eating when I was pregnant and I think that for a lot of people that would seem quite alarming and scary and so I say that because I think it's an important thing to note that you know everybody's Reacts differently for me. Like, I was just ravenous all the time and I went with it because I was like well my body's hungry like I'm gonna honor my hunger and just roll with it and even postpartum actually I was still doing that because of breastfeeding like you know you're just and moving and, and carrying a baby and all this stuff like you're just I was hungry all the time postpartum I remember talking to my friend and being like I've already had three breakfasts and it's noon <laughs> or <laughs> 11 a.m. or something <laughs> you know and, and, and I think that like for some people like that can seem excessive because you're told to you know watch what you eat or watch your weight and all the pregnancy apps and all the pregnancy websites really are rooted in fat phobia and this notion that like we should be watching our weight when we're pregnant but the way that I look at it is we have to that's the one time that we really really can trust our body and it signals and like if we're consciously restricting food like we're in essence putting our us on a diet before it's even entered the, before the baby's even entered this world we're we're you know we're starting to restrict its nourishment and that's like the last thing you want to do for the health of you for the health of your baby and so i always advise people to you know to to stay away from those forums those websites they're so they're they're so incredibly toxic and there's there's actually a lot of really good websites and and Instagram accounts specifically that are very social justice oriented and and body positive so to speak and show a lot of people in various sizes of bodies different races different Gender identities and such, experiencing pregnancy, and that to me was so therapeutic. Like in the same way that we tell people to change their social media when they are beginning this work, do the same during pregnancy and postpartum, because otherwise you're only going to be exposed to these images of thin white women in yoga pants with like top knot buns and like these you know glowing smiles with these just like cute little baby bumps. And obviously, it's nothing wrong. (laughs) There's nothing wrong if you look like that but the the majority of individuals don't look like that when they're pregnant you know because our body sizes are are different we look different we're not supposed to look one certain way
0: yeah i love that i think that's such an important tip is like to think about it as like an extension of how you would diversify your social media feed and not be just following thin white people are diet culture denizens. You like really have to unsubscribe from the diet culture in your life when you're first healing a relationship with food and your body. And it's kind of the same with pregnancy. I think there's a lot of pregnancy stuff that people just fall into that is so diet culture-y and also just sort of mainstream, like toxic femininity and very patriarchal and antiquated and old-fashioned and not the values that you probably hold in other aspects of your life. But like when you're pregnant, you, the information that you're getting often kind of falls into that into that camp. And some people I think feel like, well, that's, that's just what's out there. You know, like I can't really get away from it. And it's nice to hear that you experienced, no, there's like this very different way to approach pregnancy that is available.
1: Yeah, totally. And, it, and just like off the top of my head, there's like fourth trimester bodies, empowered birth project, take back postpartum stop censoring motherhood birth of mama like midriff movement those are all ones that 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 are kind of off the top of my head accounts to follow i know there's more because there's like plus size pregnancy i think as well um anyways just for people to know there's a lot of of resources out there that um that are
0: not the mainstream
1: (laughs) stuff that's gonna that's rooted in fat phobia and sexism and racism and everything else
0: yeah, we'll put links to those in the show notes. That's super helpful because I think probably our listeners would be really, you know, anyone who is pregnant or considering getting pregnant would really benefit from having that those resources.
1: Mm-hmm. And they show birth. This is the other thing I like about it is that they show the baby's head crowning. like they sh- They show actual images of birth because I didn't realize that was a thing, but there's labor photo shoots, which... <laughs> if I I, you know which I actually was like that would be so cool (laughs) I didn't do it I didn't end up doing it because of the budget for it was was something that just we just couldn't justify at the time but I but during labor I yelled to my husband take a picture (laughs) so there's this picture of the baby's head coming out of me and he was still in the placenta like he's got like a bubble over his head (laughs) <laughs> so cool. Anyways, um, that's probably TMI. But um, exposing myself to images like that made the whole thing less, I don't know, because there's this like air, like we think it's supposed to be gross, like the, you know, and and be like, oh, I don't want to see that, but your body's doing this incredible thing. And and like the more that you can sort of see that and understand it, at least for me, I was like excited about it. I was like, this is cool. Like, how amazing is this? And you see the different ways that babies can come out of you and the way that that looks and like the amount of of blood and other things that come out. So that way, when it happens, like it's not a surprise. And I think that that's also part of the process because normally we keep that so secretive and, or forbidden or, you know, we're like supposed to be disgusted by it. And it's like, it's so natural. It's so incredible. And, like, what if we could embrace that part of the process and really see that as like this this amazing thing happening instead of this thing that we should be feel shameful of?
0: Yeah. And being able to see images like that probably really normalizes it and makes you feel like you're not weird or broken or that this is something you should be ashamed of because you're like, no, this is what happens. Yeah.
1: You might look at it and think like, oh my God, how is my body actually going to do that? But it, it will. <laughs> <laughs> and there's drugs for it too. <laughs> <Okay>. it <will. laughs>
0: drugs and interventions and yeah yeah, all yeah, stuff. yeah. yeah.
1: Modern day times. We got this.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Oh my gosh, that's so wild. Well, so I'm curious to hear then with the postpartum period and having a new baby, you know, how that all played out. Cause I know, like you were saying during pregnancy, there's this feeling sometimes, you know, that some people get of like the miraculous way that their body is growing a life and like how cool that is and sort of helps you increase appreciation for your body. And I've heard some other people share that that can sometimes go away during postpartum or the pressures of postpartum are such that the appreciation for your body for what it has done is now kind of secondary to like get your body back and all that bullshit. So I'm curious how that played out for you. If there was any sort of that pressure that you experienced or witnessed and, and how you dealt with that.
1: Yeah, totally. I think there's the pressure to get back to who you were before, <laughs> you know, and 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 this also this pressure to to do it all and be it all, you know, to be able to like have this baby, pull yourself together, be able to make meals, go out on walks, like get back into the gym. They, there's this pressure to get back into your career. And it can really take a toll on your sense of self-worth because you just feel like you are not good enough. And then on top of that, just like the underlying feeling of not feeling like you're living up to this standard, you sort of have this idea that everyone else is doing it better than you. And and even myself, I would just think like everyone else seems to have their you know their, their stuff together here and like I don't. And that can really take a toll on on the way that you feel about yourself. And it's really beyond just your body. And I think a lot of that then manifests into body shame because body shame often is a coping mechanism or a way that we try to kind of problem solve complex anxieties and stresses in our life. It's easier to sort of think, well, if I can just, you know, get my body back, quote unquote, or lose weight, then, then I'll sort of feel like I have it together when the root of it really is just not feeling good enough, and and not feeling good enough as a product of the culture, the culture making us feel this and carry this shame. And so for me, it was a hundred percent. It was a really hard time, and I and I was is quite prepared for it. So there's this amazing book called The Fourth Trimester, which I would honestly recommend to, to anyone who's pregnant or even in that initial fourth trimester stage. but she talks about how that first three months, you really just need to be resting as much as possible and specifically the first six weeks like in in other cultures, The people who have had the babies are in bed and their communities, their village, like the, and I mean village in like a quote unquote, like, you know, their, their aunts or their sisters or their parents really look after them. And so the only thing they need to do is rest and feed the baby. In our culture or in North American culture, more specifically, we're expected to, to just Get back, get back, get back to normal. And and in, you know, I know in the US, sometimes the maternity leave, if there is any at all, is it can be as little as six weeks, which I mean in Canada it's it's twelve to eighteen months. Although when you're self-employed like me, you don't get anything. You just have to kind of decide what you're gonna do for yourself. And I could talk about that too, but there's this expectation and and like I just found it really, really difficult. Even though I I planned the first six weeks, I had people looking after me, I had a lot of help. I just still felt like everyone has this together and I don't. Um, I really struggled with sleep anxiety and, and uh, insomnia. And so you kind of mix that in with, having to get up every couple hours like I was it was just an absolute disaster and so I think I was too tired to even really think about my body in a negative way but it's certainly like I certainly was carrying around these feelings of just like not feeling good enough and the bigger the biggest impact on me that I didn't really hear a lot of people talk about before was just how much it would impact my brain function and that's why I extended my maternity leave because I, I really just didn't feel like my myself. I didn't feel like I would be able to communicate effectively on my podcast or in social media or with my clients and that took such a huge hit on my self-worth because I think for me my self-worth unfortunately is still kind of connected to you know the work I do and being able to like communicate my message effectively and have like creative thoughts and be able to you know think of these ideas in different ways and communicate them and I felt like that was just gone it was like someone had taken that chunk of my brain and and removed it and it was really scary because i thought am i never going to get this back like am i ever going to be able to work again and that had a huge impact on the way that I that I way that I was feeling about myself. And I remember kind of looking at social media and seeing other entrepreneurs who had had babies writing these like beautiful posts, and I was like, "How? Like, what is wrong with me? <laughs> like, I can't, I can't do this right now." And and so for me, I don't think it showed up as much in in the way I felt about my body as much as it did and just the overall way I felt about myself. And that's, and that's because I think I'm able to kind of detach those two things now. Whereas for a lot of people, just like those general feelings of un- unworthiness really manifest in in terms of body shame and thinking like, well, if I can just kind of get my body under control, then I'll feel better overall. That was my experience there. And I'll say that it probably took about for me, like 10 months to start my brain starting to feel like, okay, I think I can do this again. And then even then not being at my full capacity, but once I got back into it, like now almost two years postpartum, I feel mostly back to where I was from a mental perspective.
0: Wow. That is fascinating and so good to hear. Like, I mean, it it sucks that you went through it. It's not good to hear that you had to experience that, but I think it's just probably... Really helpful for anyone who's going through that, too, and helpful to know for anyone who is potentially planning to go through that. You know, I myself am, you know, thinking about that in my future potentially, and, you know, just kind of re- recognizing as much work as I've done to try to divest my self worth or detach my self worth from external things, there's always that kind of inevitable pressure, I think, of capitalism and of also just, you know, when you get rewarded for doing things in a certain way and people seem to resonate with what you're doing, there's that kind of value that you attach to it. Like, oh, I'm good at this. This is my job. This is my like gift to offer the world or whatever. And then when that's taken away temporarily by some outside force, I can imagine just feeling lost, feeling like you lost yourself. And especially when, you know, in the beginning of Parenthood, when you're sort of just figuring things out and everything probably feels upside down. I've heard some people say that like they just don't feel competent at anything, and there's this sort of like you know feeling of like I I'm not good at anything now because I don't have I I don't even have the thing that I was good at in my job anymore, and then I'm also just like not feeling competent at this new thing that I'm supposed to be doing of raising this child.
1: Yes. Yes, and and you know we don't factor in the the mental and emotional load of of caretaking and the the effect that that has on you know the way that we function, you know just to be constantly thinking about. Um, you know, what, what is, you know, what does the baby need? Like what I have to set up this doctor's appointment. When's the next nap time? Like, how am I going to get the baby to fall asleep? (laughs) Like, how am I going to fall asleep? I mean, the, the mental and emotional load of it is, is so huge. And obviously, um, because of our, you know, of, of our patriarchal culture, like often more skewed towards this is very heteronormative, but like the you know, the female in in a relationship. And that takes a massive, massive toll. And I don't think we factor that in that like, we're accounting for all these things like, okay, when do I have to do laundry? Do I have this like, all of this stuff is also occupying a ton of mental space. So you have the effect of like sleep deprivation, you have the effect of the additional mental and emotional load. And then you have the effect of the fact that your brain actually does change when you have a baby. I don't know the science behind it, or I wouldn't be able to speak to the biology around that right now. But I do know that your brain actually changes. And so that impacts things like memory and your ability to kind of think the way that you thought before. And then you have this culture that we live in, where we're constantly, you know, kind of thinking, how do I measure up to the other person? And you'll look at other moms, and you'll think like, oh, they must have it all together. Like you sort of put together this story in your head that they're doing it better than you. And then the reality is usually when you talk to them, they're not. (laughs) And I think that's where community is a really important part of that process too. people that are going through it with you that also feel like they're in the mess as well, and that you're able to be honest with about it so that you feel less alone, because it can be a really isolating experience without that. And as As an introvert who had a child later in life, so I was thirty-nine when I gave birth. All my friends had had babies before me, so none of them were going through this at the same time as me. I ended up having one one like childhood really, really good friend who ended up same thing. She and her baby was born one day before mine, but she lived across the country, so we would just sort of you know chat on the phone and whatnot. But I had to make new friends, and as an introvert, that was. Hard, but I, I just kind of was like, okay, I'm going to treat this like dating. Like I'm just going to go on these websites and like kind of suss people out, and then be like, hey, do you want to maybe meet up for coffee? And I ended up having a group, uh, or not a group, but just a relationship with about three other moms um, in my neighborhood. And you know, we would just you know meet up for for walks or for coffee, and and that was huge. Like having some kind of community because my family doesn't live near me, so I didn't have. Like a grandparent coming over to visit, or any of that stuff. And so it's it's super isolating. And that isolation can just really make you feel pretty lousy. Great sense of like kind of depression and loneliness and sadness that can come with those feelings of isolation. And so, if I can just give some, a piece of advice, is, is finding community. And I, I mean, I think that's a valid piece of advice with anything that you're experiencing, but very specific to postpartum as
0: well. I'm so curious because, I mean, for me, this comes up a lot when I think about you know, that phase of life and potentially having to make new friends and stuff. And for me, making new friends as an anti-diet person, as someone who does the work that I do and with some amount of like public profile doing this work feels really scary, honestly, because it feels like, are they going to get it? Are they going to have diet culture ideas that we're going to fight about? All of that stuff. And then of course, when it comes to raising kids too, right? As soon as you transition into solid foods, there's all kinds. I mean, even before that too, there's so many different beliefs and ideas that people have about food and about what kids should be eating or even breast versus bottle and stuff like that. So, you know, I'm curious in terms of without giving away anything you don't feel comfortable speaking to, but just, you know, how that process has been for you navigating those new friendships, doing the work that you do and having all the knowledge that you have where people that you're meeting for the first time might not have any sort of awareness of that.
1: Yeah, it's really interesting. I feel like they will usually then follow my social media and kind of learn about it that way. (laughs) Like, oh, this is who I'm dealing with, you know, because I'll tell them. uh, I I think one one of the first things we always ask people is, what do you do? And so I would always be really upfront. You know, I'm a Professionally trained coach, specializing in body image, self worth, and confidence, and I usually help people who've been chronic dieters come to a place of of acceptance and 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 live their lives beyond the number on the scale. And from there, like I would honestly say, the reaction I got was like, "Oh, that's so amazing! Like that's so, that's so needed," you know. And so I didn't. Uh, there weren't a lot of times where people would say like, "That's hor- you know. How can you? How can you do that? and and then they would usually say like oh how did you get into that and i would uh, sort of share a bit of you know my story and my experience with it and then that would just that would be kind of it. And I and I and it didn't come up a lot with the people that I that I really connected with. And maybe that's because I'm pretty selective about who I connect with. And like, you know, if I didn't really feel like we got along that well, I just would sort of move along to somebody else and and then foster the connections with people who I felt shared more similar values to me. I certainly think that there were some moments where questions would come up or like you know, statements would be made that were more fat phobic or diet, like kind of propping up diet culture. And I would just kind of respond the way I do with anybody in my life who's newer to this with compassion and empathy. And like, you know, I used to feel that way too, or I used to believe that too. And now I know this, like, do you, you know, do you want more information on that? Or can I talk to talk more about that? And so I think like kind of just approaching it the way that I approach anybody who's newer to that and know that most people are coming in with kind of like that beginner's mindset mentality but the majority of our conversations were usually around like how our kid was screaming and we couldn't get them to stop and like laughing about that and you know just kind of like the ridiculousness of it all I felt like we just you know we connected on things that weren't per in like specific to, you know, a diet, like anti-dieting or, or anything like that, which most of my friendships were sort of formed before I even did this work too. So it's kind of in the same way, but I would say most of them would follow me on Instagram or listen to a couple of my podcasts and then come back to me and say like, Oh, I really love your posts. Or I listened to one of your podcasts and I feel like they're getting the message that way. And if they didn't want to be friends with me after that, then they probably wouldn't, but they still are. so uh, I feel like that's a positive thing
0: yeah it's a good sort of weeder to see like who's who actually shares your values and
1: yeah exactly but I just feel like it's so common for for other like you know in in the case when I was meeting new parents to to sort of criticize their own body or or talk about like how they need to lose weight and I, I mean I would just approach it with with compassion and just be like you know that's just the way that we've been conditioned to feel you your body's done this amazing thing focus on that or I mean that's kind of a poor response in the moment right now but something along those lines that would just be the way I would respond to any human being who's really kind of suffering in that way instead of thinking that they're like on a different side than me they're just they just don't know they just don't know any better and I was there once too
0: yeah I love that that's really it's really nice to hear too that it's kind of Worked out well and people are are getting it.
1: Yeah. And I, I mean, I think there's probably a lot of people who don't. I just haven't, you know, I just kind of don't have them in my friend's circle or didn't have an opportunity to have them in my friend's circle. I got pretty lucky with like the two or three moms that I really connected with, I would say. It just kind of happened really nicely that we had a lot of other things in common.
0: Yeah. And I think paying attention to that too, right? Paying attention to where you have shared values with someone is probably a good indicator that they're going to get it even if they don't really know anything about anti-diet stuff to begin with they probably are on the same page about like the social justice piece and the you know sort of orientation towards the world that would make them hopefully more receptive to that information
1: Yes, totally, totally. And it, yeah, it's cool because they found other accounts. Like I know the Conscious Kid, for example, because I share their work all the time. And and they've told me like, oh, wow, like that was, you know, that was so great. And we'll talk about like one of the posts or one of the articles that they posted. And so that's been really cool to see how, you know, that's been a gateway for them to even learn more and us to learn together and then have those conversations about, you know, how we both want to teach our kids to, you know, be anti-racist and and what on
0: well speaking of that i'm curious how how that's going you know now you your child is almost 2 so it's probably early to be doing some of it but curious if there's anything you've any seeds you've been able to plant already in terms of anti racism and also anti diet stuff which is really a part of anti racism actually
1: yeah yeah so i mean i think from the from like a a very specific anti racism perspective it's just having you know looking at the books that we are reading and the media that's being consumed and making sure that there is characters that are in like the lead lead characters that are of different different races and you know different abilities and th- and things like that and there's there's a ton of really good lists out there with with books that you know you can you can purchase and and whatnot and I haven't been able to do this more recently, but sort of like maybe traveling to a different library that would have, um, you know, a different subset of kids that just to, you know, that from different backgrounds and stuff. Where I live is very, very white and I'm cognizant of that. And it's something that's like certainly on my mind. There's a a very big uh, Asian population as well, but there's, I think the percentage of, of Black people in where in Vancouver is I think like two percent, so it's very low where I live, and that's something that is is you know that I'm really aware of and know that that's kind of how I was raised. That's the environment that I was raised in, and and I want different for for my child. And so just, you know, trying to have that through, you know, the the, the books that we read and, and, you know, where we maybe go to do different events and things like that so that he's not just existing in this world that looks like kind of our immediate neighborhood, although there is actually diversity in the neighborhood that we live in, but in our city, so to speak. Um, and then from like a, from an anti-diet perspective, you know, I, right off the bat, I was like really cognizant of this because so much of my, my disordered behaviors were implanted from a, a really, really young age. I grew up in a household where there was a lot of, uh, like restriction, but not, not, I mean, not really intentional, but just like we weren't allowed to eat, um, you know, we weren't even allowed Cheerios, let's just put it that way. And then we were like encouraged to like eat as much as we could on weekends or on Halloween. Like we had to only, we were only allowed to eat candy on Halloween. So whatever we wanted, we kind of had to eat it all then. And then, and then it was thrown away. So I, I really grew up in this environment where I was learning this kind of restrict binge cycle, Without it even being that intentional, but that's just like that. That is how my relationship with food was as a child, because that's what was going on in my household. And I want different <laughs> for my child. And so I did a couple courses on that. Feeding Littles specifically has a couple of really good courses on feeding babies and feeding toddlers. And they use the Ellen Satter approach of uh, the division of responsibility. So, you know, you, you provide and they decide, and we've been using that. And sometimes it's actually quite hard for me to really completely take away control. Like I I will admit that for me to completely surrender control, sometimes it's hard. I have to really be like, don't say anything. Don't say anything. Like he just ate ketchup for dinner, but don't say anything, (laughs) you know, (laughs) And and really just trust. But it always it always kind of, you know, it always works out. Like there's sometimes there's tantrums because I'm like, well, because now he's able to ask for things and he knows where things are in cupboards. And, and I'm like, that's not on the menu for dinner. But I always make sure there's something that I know he likes, you know, but the odd time there's, you know, worse. Well, not the odd time. I'm sure it's going to be more and more now that he's like getting closer to two, but there are some, you know difficult moments but but when we do give him something it's you know he can have as as much of it as he wants there's always kind of a variety of foods he's become a lot more picky in the last few months which is really normal that's actually like a kind of a developmental thing that happens for a reason and i'm trying to roll with it instead of saying like no you need to eat this or make sure you have a bite of that i'm really taking away all that stuff and just you know i put a bunch of things on the plate he can have as much of those things as as he wants and i don't assert like that's good or that's bad or good for you for eating broccoli like it just whatever happens happens and then we move on and it's been great because i really do i really do see how he's intuitive and how like he can trust himself and how hopefully things will balance out a little more but, <laughs> <laughs> but but it does it does in a lot of ways but Sometimes it's really difficult. Like I said, like when he'll, he'll only have a ketchup for dinner and I'm like, are, like, are you going to be okay? But <laughs> I try not to say anything. I'm like, okay, like, that's just what just happened there. But, you know, other stuff, you know, things that would be considered quote unquote forbidden, like he really just doesn't have that much interest in. He just, you know, cause some, like if we're having, I don't know, cake or something, I'll just put it on his plate with the other food and he'll maybe have a bite, maybe a couple bites. At, but it's just not a big deal. And it's been really cool to watch that and just see how if I just give him full permission, let him trust himself, trust his hunger and fullness signals that he doesn't make a big deal of things like it's not like, oh, I have to eat this all because it's going away. It's it's really teaching him that like these foods are here and there's not like all foods fit. There's nothing particularly special about these foods. And you can have them. And that's been really interesting to see because I, I love watching it unfold. just almost like I'm almost like an anthropologist, like observing him being like, "Oh, this is how humans are supposed to eat." <laughs> you know <laughs> we lose that when all those messages come in. And then from, you know, from a body perspective, just never talking about bodies in in front of him. In any kind of positive or negative way, other than saying like, oh, like your body's so cool. You were able to like hang from that bar or, uh, you know, stuff like that, but never, you know, criticizing someone's body or saying like, oh, you know, something negative about size or anything like that. And really being aware of whether there are any, there's any underlying threads of fat phobia in like the the books that we're reading or the media that's being consumed, because I know that stuff is pretty Insidious. Like it's just in there. And I want to make sure that we're being media literate with it when he's old enough to understand. But in the meantime, just making sure that we're kind of not reading those things right now.
0: Yeah, that's a great approach because at two, you can't really understand his developmental stage, probably isn't to the place where he could have any sort of criticism or media literacy around it. So it's like helpful to just keep it out of his. Out of his mind altogether.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly.
0: That's so awesome, and I love that the Ellen Satter model is really showing how much he can trust himself and how intuitive he is foundationally. Like without ever having had diet culture interfere in his life, this is just how he is. Like he's holding on to the default mode of of eating, the default way of relating to food, and it's so cool to to have that experience to sort of reinforce your own sense of trust in it, I bet, because, you know, it's one thing to know that that's the case, but it's another to really witness it unfolding.
1: Right. Exa- exactly. It is really cool. The other day, because he's never had ice cream, just because we just haven't really had it around very much lately. I don't know, because we just had a really cold year, but I had ice cream the other day and I was like, how some, have some, <laughs> he refused to try ice cream. And I was like, no no, no. And I'm like, you don't
0: know what you're missing
1: here. And he just refused to try. And it was so funny because I was like, I was like, I was like, whose child is this? <laughs> First of all, Both my husband and I love ice cream, but he's definitely more into salty food. And I'm not saying that's a good thing, but it was just, it was just an interesting thing because if he was really into it, that would be fine too. You know, it doesn't, I'm not saying the fact that he was that it, I'm not saying that because he wasn't interested in it that's that's a good thing it was just interesting to sort of observe the fact that um it was just another food like it wasn't like anything special and so therefore he didn't want to try it cuz he's just not really into trying a lot of new things at the moment but you know we'll try it again and see if he wants to eat ice cream
0: <laughs> yeah that's so funny the pickiness is like setting in and i think it is interesting too to think about kids who've been deprived of sweets and where that's the forbidden fruit even with pickiness, I've seen kids still really go to town on sweets because they're forbidden. When you don't have that relationship with it, it's kind of like, no, I just don't want it. And you know, sometimes he in the future he probably will want it. There's no moral value to that either.
1: Yes, exactly. Exactly. And I mean, as I said, that's how I grew up. It was there was just so much moral value placed on food, and and I I do not want that. <laughs> for him. I I definitely want to do better there because I know how that can just create this narrative around food and and your relationship with it that lasts for decades and then eventually escalates into even worse disordered habits.
0: Has he had much interaction, probably not in the the past six months or so or whatever with um, COVID, but with other kids and like daycare settings and stuff where there's other people's ideas about food getting kind of overlaid or is it mostly right now just kind of you and your husband taking care of him and feeding him?
1: Yeah. So what's interesting is I think if we were to take, we have, we've had to cancel two family trips, but I think if we had those, there would certainly be like some like, yay, you're eating this like kind of encouragement or like, he's such a good eater. I know that would come from my grandparents. So we haven't had that because we haven't seen them in in you know months, which is Really unfortunate. Of course, now that he's older and able to kind of understand that stuff, I will probably say. Well, we don't really talk about, you know, we just let him eat. <laughs> and and hopefully, uh, I mean, even if there is like a comment or two, it wouldn't really stick with him that much because it's just so fleeting. But uh, in terms of his care, he's actually he goes to this woman's house. She's a stay at- home mom who has a kid around his age, and she's amazing. The reason why I was I was attracted to her was because she posted like, you know, I'm looking to look after another child because I have a child, you know, of the same age. She said something about like, I don't conform to gender ideals. She said something like that. And I was like, who is this person? I want them looking after my kid. And so she's just been amazing because she we share the exact same values around bodies and food and social justice. And like, you know, she's kind of dove into my work and I could not ask for a better caretaker. We've become good friends as well through that process. So I've been really lucky because she holds the same philosophy as me when it comes to food. Um, and and it's the same thing, like, it's just like, it's here, it's not a big deal, there's no comments made. So for me, I feel like I've just been so fortunate in that way. And we haven't had a lot of other like opportunities to be around a lot of other people. There's no one else that's been looking after him in the last few months, let's just put it that way, to have any other influences. And my plan, it's just working out really well with the caretaking situation right now. So I don't have any intentions of changing that in the near future. But I'm sure that, you know, once school age hits, then then a lot of the other influences will come in. But I'm hoping that I've built up a solid enough foundation by then that we can just kind of talk about those things and, and say, you know, this is, this is how we look at it. And I'll probably have to do some more research on how to really have those conversations because I'm not sure at the moment. But it will be something that I want to be very cognizant of because I know I've seen people talk about how they teach health in schools, quote unquote, health. And how it's very much rooted in in fat phobia and in diet culture.
0: yeah,, oh, completely. it's It's a tricky thing to navigate, I think. but giving him a base where he knows how you relate to food in your house seems like a great approach, a great way to start, that he doesn't have any sort of forbiddenness or good, bad labels around food at any point.
1: But I would just say like to other parents who maybe have a different situation, like you, you get to advocate for what you want for your child and and don't be afraid to be the weird one, quote unquote, like to say, this is, you know, this is how we handle things. Because, you know, I've seen other places say, like, send kids snacks home because they said that it wasn't like a healthy snack or something, quote unquote, and you get to decide what's best for your child and and you're the authority there. And so don't let kind of people pleasing or being afraid of conflict or anything like that stop you from saying what's best for your child. And I think that that's really important. And that's something that I will honor, hopefully, as best I can moving forward as a a former or like recovering people pleaser and someone who avoids confrontation.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Same. It seems like a really challenging thing. But when it is your kid and you're doing, you know, you're working to uphold values that you believe in, I think it probably helps cut through some of the discomfort with that. Mm
1: -hmm. Totally.
0: I mean, speaking of boundaries and, you know, recovering people pleasing and stuff, I love your new-ish, I guess, relaunch since the last time you were on the podcast course, you on fire and this idea of reclaiming yourself and becoming like the most on fire version of yourself you can be. I'm curious about that relaunch and the way that the new course has kind of also and your work in general has fit in with having a child and how you're navigating and balancing all that
1: yeah so i i mean the the course was used to be called rock your body which i just i got to a point where i was like this just doesn't feel like it feels too cute it feels it just doesn't feel like what the course is really about and and it didn't feel like what I was about anymore because i just although you know i specifically say i focus on body image it's really the fundamental piece of what i do with people is around self-worth and and worthiness and getting to a point where the, your appearance is is divested from your value as a person and you can kind of look in the mirror and and like what you see or not like what you see but know that you are still good enough and and you know go on and do good things with with your day and your and your life as best as you can and so I, I didn't feel like that was that was kind of reflected and in, in the name of the course. And I actually worked with Kelly Deals around changing the name because copywriting is not my forte. And she helped me kind of really get to get to the essence of what the of the work was that I was doing with people and then name it. And I, I think I actually pulled my email list and I, or I asked them for feedback and things like that too. And and I think I, I took some of that feedback and, and used it to rebrand the whole thing and add more of a, a social justice lens to it. So I, I think it, it it wasn't, it was probably back in 2017 that I, that I rebranded it as you and fire. And that was because I just, I'm continually evolving and learning. And and I think the, you know, the social justice piece of the puzzle is such an important piece of the puzzle that wasn't highlighted to the fullest extent in the original offering. And so layering that in and having that there, and and also just kind of really highlighting the focus on you and you taking up space and you owning who you are and you untaming yourself from all of these cultural expectations and ideals and and reflecting that in, in the title. And because that's really it, the work that I'm doing with people. And it's been great because it's obviously really great to feel connected to something more, you know, like we all sort of outgrow things. For example, like I really hate the name of my podcast and I'm going to be changing it, but I just haven't had the time to do that. But, you know, st- we, we just outgrow things. <laughs> and and then navigating that with having a child uh, was really quite a challenge. I think I just had to give myself so much grace and really, really lower the bar. I initially was going to only take six months of maternity leave. But as I mentioned, the, the, I just didn't feel capable of, of coming back at that time. So I took a, a few months longer. It almost ended up being... About a year that I was off and just sort of having things in rerun mode in terms of social media posts and episodes of the podcast, I was completely hands off for a year. And so when I came back, it was I, I mean, I think I was probably set the bar too high, even though I said I even though I said I was trying to set the bar too low, I think it was still too high. And because I'm only working half the amount of time that I was working before, because I want to be able to spend more time with him while he's younger. That was really hard at first, like even just kind of getting my groove again, like reconnecting with people and and my, I had a lot of self-doubt popping back up and fear. I was afraid of failure. I was afraid of rejection. So I was sort of holding back. It was almost like starting over <laughs> and those initial kind of like entrepreneurial feelings of imposter syndrome and like, who am I? What do I have to say? No one wants to hear this. That really took a massive toll on me, and and my dad passed away concurrently with me coming back to work. So there was my world kind of imploded or exploded, one or the other, or both simultaneously around that time, and uh, it was a really really difficult fall. And I and I think I was harder on myself than in hindsight. I was I was much too hard on myself, and and tried to kind of push through stuff way more than I than I should have. And I really didn't uh, feel kind of back to being moderately myself until the new year, 2020, and then the pandemic happened. <laughs> so it's been kind of a like a, a wild year. But you know, in terms of in terms of like navigating the program and stuff, because it's a group program, it's been I just love it so much. I love the community aspect of it, and I and it, and it really works with because I don't have as much time to like see clients privately like I used to my focus is really on that. And that's been really good and nourishing for my soul as well, because I just, I love, I love um, the people who are doing the program. I love making that connection with them and kind of seeing where they start and where they end up and continuing those connections as they, as they go on in, in their journey. But it was a rocky road back. I'll tell you that much. It was, this fall was, was pretty terrible.
0: Yeah, that sounds awful. Ugh. And to have like a difficult fall before the global pandemic too, so that just all of this past year or so has been, oh God, that must have been so hard. One thing after another.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, I'm sort of laughing at the ridiculousness of it now, because, even though we're still in the midst of it, but <laughs> it's my coping mechanism. Because January, I was like, I I had this big moment of closure as it relates to my dad's death in, in around Christmas time. And I, I came back in January and I was, I was actually like, okay like i really i have all these ideas coming again like i feel really motivated to to work on my business which i hadn't had yet so i was really riding that wave and it was really exciting it was really awesome <laughs> and then the pandemic hit and i was like okay but you know what we've been through a lot of things this year so we got this but it turned out a lot of people needed the support that i was offering and so i had a really amazing group of people in the last cycle of you on fire that were we were working together through the pandemic and it was actually a much needed support system for these individuals and because I think a lot of people were feeling particularly isolated, particularly triggered and, and such. And so having that support was like doubly important. So certainly therapeutic for me as well and having that and having that community and and feeling like I sort of am back in my group, even though we're in a pandemic and that feels a little bit privileged to say, but there's still a lot of bad stuff going on, but to at least feel a little bit more like myself is good. <laughs>
0: Yeah. And like to have the, you know, you went through so much difficult stuff already. It seems like it kind of showed you that you were capable of handling difficult things.
1: Yeah. Yes. Yes. Like the amount of grief I had, I was like, you know, what what else can really, you know, yeah, <laughs> shake me right now? I can, I'm resilient. I have a good therapist. I can do this. <laughs> yeah. And uh, yeah, yeah. But yeah, no, it's been a challenging year for sure. It definitely has ups and downs. I don't want to make it sound like I'm like all good now, but it's something that I feel a lot more resilient to at the
0: moment. Yeah, that's awesome. I'm grateful for that. Well, tell us where people can learn more about your program and get involved in your work and just dive into all the stuff you have to offer.
1: Sure, so you can find me at com, or you can just type in the com, and that will take you to my website where I have all my links and resources including a 10-day body confident a free 10-day body confidence makeover that's kind of like an intro into the work I do with people. And I have a podcast called Fearless Rebel Radio, where I talk about body image and self-worth and confidence and finding your purpose outside of dieting and appearance and intuitive eating and all those, all those topics. And uh, I'm also on Instagram and Facebook as Summer in, and in
0: Awesome. We'll put links to those in the show notes so people can find you. And I know your next phase of the program is happening really soon. So definitely encourage people to go check that out if that's of interest on your website thank you so much it's so great to talk with you again as always thank you christy so that's our show thanks again so much to summer in and in for joining us on this episode and thanks to you for listening if you're looking for some practical tips to help you get started on the anti-diet path grab my free audio guide seven simple strategies for finding peace and freedom with food just go to christyharrison.com strategies to get it That's christyharrison.com slash strategies. To get full show notes from this episode, including all the resources we discussed, plus a full transcript, just go to christyharrison.com slash 251. That's christyharrison.com slash 251. And to get the transcript, just scroll down to the bottom of the page and enter your email address. This episode was brought to you by my online course, Intuitive Eating Fundamentals. If you're ready to make peace with food, break free from diet culture, and reclaim the life it stole from you, you can learn more and sign up at christyharrison.com slash course. That's christyharrison.com slash course. You can support the show by subscribing and leaving a nice rating and review in your podcast provider of choice. And to see all the places to subscribe, just go to christyharrison.com slash subscribe. That is christyharrison.com slash subscribe. A big thanks, as always, to our editor and sound engineer, Mike Lalonde, our community and content associate, Vinci Chui, our administrative assistant, Julianne Witasik, and our transcriptionist, Mycroft Holmes, for helping me out with all the moving parts that go into producing this show every week. Our album art was photographed by Abby Moore Photography and designed by Melissa Alam. Our theme song was written and performed by Carolyn Pennypacker Riggs. And I'm your host and producer, Christy Harrison. Thanks again for listening and until next time, stay psyched.